morning. It's good to see everyone. If you're if you're from the movie nights that we had this uh, past Friday, just welcome. Love to welcome you. Love to meet you along with the rest of our staff. So uh, drop by that back guest information table later on. We'd love to just visit with you and and give you that uh, mug. Just say welcome. Today we're two weeks into this series called Everyday Missionary, where we're trying to get a clearer understanding on what what it means to be a missionary. And the definition in the dictionary, really simple definition, a literal one, is this. It's a person sent on a religious mission. And this typically is what comes to our mind when we think of the word missionary. We think of someone who goes uh, away from here, oftentimes to foreign places. Um, But what you discover really in the Bible is that Every Christ follower is sent on, on a mission. Every Christ follower is sent on a mission every day. This isn't just a term that's reserved for those who, who live outside of our country or who, who you know, travel abroad uh, to, to share their faith. This is really something that we're called to do if we follow Christ. After His resurrection, Jesus, He gave these instructions to His followers. He said, He said, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me even so, I'm sending you. He's using two words here, two different words in the, in the original language that when he's talking about he has been sent, it's this word that just means to be sent out. And then he says, just as I was sent, I'm sending you. It's the same word. It's, it's a different Greek word. Basically means the same thing, to, to be sent out or to send someone with a message. And so he, he is sending his followers out with a message of real hope. And early on, Jesus' followers, they were called disciples. They were his learners, his pupils. Uh, he, it says, you know, he, he would call his disciples to himself. He's talking about this group of people that, you know, did life with him. They watched the way he lived. They saw his priorities. They were, they were his, you know, his, his followers. They were learning what they could. They were taking things in, taking note of how he did life. But at a certain point, he then sends them out as apostles, basically as sent ones who will now take the message um, about him and spread that around. And that's really what this idea is. is uh, Every day we, we, we are sent into the world. And the question that every Christ follower must ask is, where has he sent me? Like, or where is he sending me? Jesus sends some of his, his followers to other countries. Here's a picture of a, of a missionary in Papua New Guinea. This person has been sent to go to a full, God specifically called him to go uh, to reach an unreached people group. He wanted to share the gospel there, try to plant a church there, try to translate the Bible into their common language there, and then uh, leave at the point when the church is healthy enough for him to leave and they can be reproducing without uh, without this this missionary there. That certainly is you know where this man has been sent. Uh, you know, if, if you're a missionary, you, you adapt your life to a different group of people and you try to contextualize the message of Christianity to a different place. And it's a real challenge to do that. I mean, if you can imagine moving into the jungle, can you imagine, you know, living among a people group that speak a different language, have a different way of life, their culture, their customs, their thinking on spiritual matters are very different. This is very, very uh, you know, challenging to cross cultures in this sense. Now, most of us, are sent to the places we work and live every day. Maybe God has clarified to you that, hey, I, I have a mission field right in my backyard, my neighborhood, my workplace. Here's a picture of a block party. Here's a block party. So imagine you seeing yourself, I'm an everyday missionary. I'm someone who's been sent to reach my street, to reach people that I live around. 
I mean, you live on a block, it may not look like this. This kind of looks like, you know, like out of a movie almost. Like, how ideal is that? You know, to have space, you know, like more than five feet between your neighbor's property and yours, you know. But, you know, this is... But to be intentional, to reach out, have barbecues, to get to know neighbors, you know, there's still a distance if you think this way in our culture and you, you realize... Maybe it's my coworkers. Maybe it's my neighbors. Literally, there's still a distance that we have to travel, but it's not measured in miles. There's this gap still that exists between us and other people, and it's very easy for us to just get wrapped up in our own lives and to miss the everyday opportunities that we have to share. We don't often notice because we get so consumed with our own lives, our own family, our own friends, and all of that stuff is good and purposeful. But if we're not careful, we don't notice the people around us. We don't try to connect with people in meaningful ways. In, in in a way that would allow the, the message of, of Jesus to, um, to travel from us to them. And sometimes it's just that our perspective is, is the reason we struggle to see that we're missionaries every day. I want to ask you to take out this listening guide. You see at the top, this is in your program. You can follow along with this morning's message. Here's part of what makes it difficult for us to bridge the gap and really connect with people. It's this. It's that... People tend to think in two categories, us and them. We tend to think us and them, or even us versus them. If, if this, this shows up really early on in our lives. If you think back to maybe the early years of your life, think junior high, think high school. That's around the time when I remember I started identifying with certain people. Like, I belong to this group of people. I feel comfortable with this group of people. And th- this is my crowd. I'm with, I'm with this group. And that's, that's us. You know, I belong to that group. And then there's everybody else. There's them. There's the groups I don't feel like I belong to. It's the, the people I maybe feel like I couldn't relate as well to. And if you, if you think back, the circle that you considered your us is a real small circle. And, you know, we might call this a clique or, or a gang of people that hung, hung out together. This is actually a recurring theme in many of the movies. Uh, here, here are some of the old school coolest clicks that I could find. So, some old school cool clicks here. This is Back to the Future. Biff and his gang. <clears throat> you remember this? This is 1985. For some, that's before you were born. But for, for some of you, you remember this movie. And, and Biff is, you know, he's the character driving. And he's kind of the bully that kicks around George McFly, steals his homework, takes his grades, uh, you know, tries to get him to do his homework for him. And remember George McFly, okay, Biff, I'll have your homework ready for you tonight. And he's, he's intimidated by, by Biff and his little, his little clan of, you know, look at the guy on the left. You recognize him? Billy Zane. That's like a young version of Billy Zane, you know. And then the guy off to the right, his name was 3D because he's wearing those cool 3D glasses around town. How <laughs> ridiculous now. But you know, back then, in the 80s, that was, that was really cool. You know, and so for Biff and his friends, that was us. You know, they were, they were in this circle. They belonged. And then there's everyone else. There's them. Here's another uh, movie from the 80s, same year, The Breakfast Club. And, you know, it just kind of illustrates the labels that we give to people. But there's different labels that we kind of used. Maybe you didn't use these exact labels. You've know, got the criminal got the athlete. You know, you might have called the athlete the jocks at your school. The basket case. The princess. You know, she had everything. She was, she was not used to having to, to work hard. Things were given to her. You've got the brain. You know, you have the real smart people. And again, you might identify, this, this is my people. Or, and then, then there's everyone else. There's them. And then going back further, here's, here's a picture of another cool clique from, from Greece. 
the T-Birds, right? The T-Birds and then their counterparts. I don't have a picture of the pink ladies, but you've got the T-Birds and, and they were, they, you know, if you belonged to them, you know, you wore a leather jacket, you fixed cars, and, you know, occasionally you just burst into song, you know, as a bunch of guys. <laughs> the good old days, you know? <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> you know, but this was a cool group. Now, we tend to identify with a certain crowd of people. I don't know who you identify with, who you feel most comfortable with, but it's natural for all of us to kind of develop an us and them mentality. And this is especially true in religious circles. You've got your people, the way you do things, the way we do things, and then you've got them. You've got, you know, the others. And, and I want to look at that tension that we face with us versus them. Sadly today, this, this comes in extremes. Us versus them. In the worst extreme is that, is that people who, who you know, want to eradicate those that do not believe like them. That's in the worst extreme. There are those that want to eradicate and terrorize everyone who disagrees with them. You know, this can get really bad in a religious sense. Uh, Jesus, he faced the same tension. He dealt with the us-them bias in his day. He was Jewish. He related, you know, his, his disciples were Jewish. They interacted with Jewish leaders. But there was this tension between us-them. And there was, there was some tremendous tension that arose between the Jewish leaders and Jesus and his followers. The leaders, uh, and I want to show you a passage from Luke 15. You can see this in your listening guide. It says this. Here's a situation where we see this tension rise up. Luke 15, 1 and 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Meaning, to hear Jesus. So he's got this group of people drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And you see the division show up right here. Okay, The Pharisees and the scribes, were the they had a group. Their group, their us, was religious leaders. The Pharisees were strict religious leaders group of people who tried to obey the law, God's law. They tried to obey it very, very carefully. And then on top of God's law, they created other laws, man-made traditions that they also tried to follow. So the, the Pharisees were very focused on keeping the rules, keeping God's rules. But then they stacked on a bunch of man-made rules. And so they're trying to live a very, very devout life. Some of the laws that the Pharisees had for themselves were rid- ridiculous laws. You can study that on your own if you want to you know, learn about some of the Pharisees laws, but read, read that. You can research on that. But they, you know, if you were a Pharisee, you, you you lived a very strict strict life. The scribes were those that cop, copied the law. They copied, they made copies of God's law, and their their job was to preserve the ancient text, to preserve the Jewish law. So these people, Pharisees and the scribes, were criticizing who Jesus hung out with. They were criticizing Jesus's associations, the fact that he hung out with tax collectors. And sinners. The tax collectors were outsiders. They were people that were rejected by their own people because they would swindle, they would steal from people. And so Jesus, he's, he's getting around this folks, these folks. And, and his response is very, very perceptive. Jesus' responds. he takes the opportunity to make it clear that God does not condone this us and them mentality among his people. You know, it's not about us versus them. Now the comment that they're making is clearly about a label that's being given. You know, these, those people, they're outside. Now, how have we done this? Think about your own life. How have we thought in the us-them categories? Where, where has this distinction shown up in our lives? Where have you, like, 
feel, felt like you fit into a group and you felt like, man, when you're with your group of people, when you're, when you're in the us group, you, you stand a little taller, you feel a little more comfortable, you know, maybe you even feel a little better than other groups. What that does is it raises barriers, it, it, you know, it builds walls that isolates other people who are on the outside. And this is what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing here in Jesus' day. And if we're not careful, we can slip into that. That's why Jesus' relationship circles were such a shock to everybody. Rather than raising barriers, he was lowering barriers and relating to all kinds of people. Jesus' followers, here's what we must do. We must reject the attitude of us versus them. And it's a constant evaluation that has to go on for us to even realize we have a barrier at points with people that are not like us. But then learning to reject that, that, that thinking. Jesus, he let out in his example. Rather than spending all his time with religious folks, churched folks, he spent large amounts of time with the outsiders, with the unchurched folks. And in the rest of this story, or in the rest of this chapter, Jesus... He explains why he does this. Rather than speaking directly to them and answering, you know, why I do this, he tells them three stories and he explains why he spends time with who he spends time with. And he drives home his point by sharing three stories. And the stories are, in summary are this. There's a man who has a hundred sheep and loses one sheep. There's a woman who has ten coins and she loses one coin and she goes hunting for her lost coin until it's found. And then a father has two sons. One of the sons leaves. He leaves and he wants his inheritance early. And those are the three stories that Jesus shares. These are just parables. So he makes these stories up to prove a point here. And But in all these stories, here's the common thread. The common thread is finding what was lost is the obsession of that person who's hunting. This is what they're consumed with. This is what they're obsessed with, is finding what was lost. Now, and the question I have for you before we read the story is this. What is so important to you that if you lost it, you would go out on an all-out search and rescue mission to find it? What is so important to you that you would drop everything and that you'd hunt and that you'd search until that thing is found or that person is found? Two examples for me come to mind. One is about... Ten years ago, my sister and my sister-in-law and her husband were visiting. They were uh, missionaries at that time overseas, so they were visiting us um, from South Korea. And we both had one kid. We both had one child. So we had our old, we had our son at that point. He was two, and they had a daughter who was also two. And the kids were playing, have a good time, relating as cousins. And we were visiting. And at a certain point, my sister-in-law misplaced her ring. And all she remembered was she put it down on a table for some reason near where the kids were playing and it was not found after that. It was like, my ring's gone. And you can imagine two toddlers, you know, they see this shiny thing, you know. And, and as best as we all could tell, they took it and they played with it, hit it. But we didn't know where it went. And so everyone was hunting for this ring. We're looking everywhere, looking through all the toys, couldn't find, you know, kids got a lot of toys. And so you're searching and you, you take your ring you know, you take your ring, I'm having a hard time getting my ring off. <sighs> anyway, you take your ring and you're like, you see this? Where is Auntie Jessica's ring? And they're like, <laughs> you know, they're giving you googly, face, googly faces and they, they lead you on a wild goose chase around the house and, you know, we can't find the ring. 
Well, stress begins to build, anxiety begins to build. We had a plan to go to the beach for the day, and so everyone decided, maybe we should just still go to the beach. We can look for it tonight. We're just not getting anywhere. Everyone's getting frustrated. And, and so we decided to go to the beach. Well, at the beach, it just spoiled the day. And then I understand. This is their, you know, it's a diamond ring. You know, my brother-in-law's stressing out. And his wife's stressing out. You know, and it's just, everyone's just like, it, t- it stole the, the joy. We couldn't focus because this thing was lost. And so we eventually decided, let's just go home. So we go all the way home. Still can't find the ring. Next morning, wake up. And the kids are playing again. And here's where we discovered the ring. It was wedged on the back of a Duplo. (laughs) It was stuck around that circle on the back side. It was just pressed on the back, securely over the hole. It was a miracle. (laughs) And what a joy and a relief for, for everyone. I mean, we just could not rest until that thing was found. Here's another story that comes to my mind about losing something. One time, it was about six years ago, we were at Disneyland, and uh, this story gets a little better and a little more personal. And uh, we were at Disneyland with some friends, Scott and Penny, who are here, and, and with our families, and the fireworks had just went off, and I think we were, we, were, we were like leaving a crowded Main Street, but it was evening. We were leaving a crowded Main Street. One of those days where everyone's just like, shoulder to shoulder trying to get out and you're barely moving but you're inching your way towards Main Street. It's chaos. And at a certain point as we were walking I realized that my middle son was not with us. <laughs> and let's see, six years ago so he would have probably been around three you know, at that point, maybe four. You know, who's done this before? You don't need to admit it. You can make me <laughs> you can make me look like the horrible parent but it's fine. We scramble I, at first it was like, where's Gavin? I don't think Gavin's with us. You know, we're looking around and, what? Oh, and then everybody just scrambles and scatters and tries to find my son. And we're looking and looking and looking and we couldn't find him. And it felt like an eternity. And I'm thinking the worst case scenario. We're by the front gate. Somebody's going to snatch him. You know there's people here that must do that. And I mean, that's, you know, and they're just going to get him. No one would know. How would we know? And I'm freaking out, running all the wrong scenarios in my mind of what's going to happen. And eventually the phone rings. And it's our friend Penny, and she's like, I've got him. He's at, he's at the city hall. Someone took him there, you know. And what happened was, Gavin, we, we did, I think, tell him at one point, you know, to, you know, find a person. So he started screaming, probably like, I'm lost! I'm lost! He was screaming. And, uh, he's, he can be loud, and so he got someone's attention. And the attendant took him to the city hall, which is where we eventually found him. But in that, in that period of time, it just, you know, ten minutes, if that, it felt like an eternity. Now, if you're a parent, you know, first you're thinking, well, I'm a better parent than you. But if you're a parent and you've lost your child at Disneyland, you know how that feels. Or if you've lost your child at a department store. See, now the judgment, you know, changes, right? You're consumed with, you know, shopping and... and well, you know, kids slip away, they hide in the clothes thing, they think it's funny, and then you realize, where are they? Or or maybe you're at a baseball game, and it's, you know, 50,000 people, and you, again, same scenario. Or, you know, some of you, I know you've lost your kid at your house before. You're like, where are they? Where are they? And you hunt everywhere, and you eventually find them. And, and you know, but during that time, when they're lost, everything just halts. Just everything halts, and you go on a mission to find what was lost. 
And that's really the point here in the parable that Jesus is bringing up. My child is lost. That's exactly the point that Jesus is making. God's children are lost and He wants them found. Here's the story. I'm going to read some of this. It's not going to be up on the screen because I didn't include it all up on the PowerPoint. But I'm going to read from verse 11. It says this. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property, of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, this younger son, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And as he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything... When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now it's interesting. The son was planning before, the verses said. Jesus says, the son was planning before what he was going to say to his father. Before he can even get the words out of his mouth, the father sees him. He runs. He greets. He initiates. He embraces. And then the son. So one thing about that is God, you know, he's giving a picture of who initiates in this. Is that God does. God does that. Verse 21 The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, Jesus' story here should really shape our attitude since it shows God's heart for all people. But there's some wrong attitudes that we see. The first wrong attitude is this. It's grumbling. Grumbling is where we see the whole interaction start with the Pharisees and the scribes. Look again at verse 2 from the passage. The Pharisees and the scribes, those religious leaders, they grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. There's this grumbling. Grumbling is when we whisper or we murmur for others to hear. Sometimes we just scrutinize and criticize people. We scrutinize them. Those on the outside, we just start whispering. Have you ever caught yourself grumbling about people that bother you? I know I have. And when I find myself in that place where I start grumbling, man, just, ah, I'm so frustrated at this group of people. And I, you can fill in the blank on who that is, who, who you grumble against. But I know when I get to that place, I need to address my attitude because if I don't, my heart is moving away from God's heart. So they're grumbling. Another wrong attitude is this. It's the judging. Now here we see the judging in the older brother. I want to read this. We see this older brother, after the younger brother returns home, now there's a conflict that erupts between the father and the older son over the party that dad has just thrown for the younger son. Look at what the text reads in verse 25. It says, Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and he drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf 
because he has received him back safe and sound. Look what the servant says. Your brother has come. Okay? Verse 28, But he was angry, the brother, and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? A couple of things I want to point out. Jesus, in his story here, look at the wording that he has the older brother using. Go, go ahead and go back to that previous slide. You know, the brother could have said, Jesus could have had the, the guy say, when my brother came back, you know, the one that devoured, no, he says, this son of yours, he doesn't even connect with him on a personal level. He detaches himself from him. There's this us and them. He's not one of us. He's them. This son of yours. He could have said, when my brother. There's a distinction he's making. Now, why is the older son so angry here? He's The, why, the reason why is because he's been the, the better son in his mind. He didn't squander his inheritance. He didn't, he didn't blow all that money. And yet, the moral failure who does all that, he's the one that gets the party. How is, that, how is this okay? He's saying, what about me? And he's moving into selfishness. He's moving into pride. and He has no compassion for his brother. In, in other words, he has no compassion for them. This is an us-them issue. Instead of compassion, all he has is judgment. And this is where we really end up if we're thinking that, you know, we are better than them. And we focus on us and not them. Now, here's the right attitude. The right attitude is, is displayed in the Father. It's compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy. Verse 31. You get the response of the Father here. It says, And He said to him, Son, you're always with Me, and all that is Mine is Yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I love how the, the story has the Father using language that unites them. Puts them on the same page. He's trying, to, he's trying to close the gap that exists between us and them. God's revealing His heart in the response of the Father. People who are lost are so precious to God. Whenever the lost are found, parties break out in heaven. That's what the, the chapter shows us. There's these parties. Angels are celebrating in heaven when the lost are found. So often, we forget where we were when God got our attention and He woke us up to a relationship with Him. We forget how bad off we were when we were separated from God. And we can't remember that far back into our past. And, but if we do, if we go back to where we were when God got a hold of us and began drawing and calling us to Himself, then it helps us to have compassion towards, towards others. It helps us realize, I can't have an us-them mentality. It's not us versus them. Here's what it is. Jesus gives His followers this mission. It's us for them. It's... it's how are we going to reach out and close this gap? It's us for them. We work together to reach out to, the, to those who are, who are unchurched, to those who are, would describe themselves as far from God. We want to help people come to know Jesus Christ and connect with Him in a personal and a real way. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven, He gives this mission to His uh, 
to his apostles. He says this, You receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. A few things to note. The mission that they're going to, to live out begins with power. They needed power. And so God says, you're going to receive power. He's talking about the Holy Spirit coming upon the church, empowering them to do the work of reaching out. The same power that was displayed that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that Christ's followers have living inside of them. The Holy Spirit who indwells the Christian is the one who helps us accomplish this mission. He's the one that fuels our action. But notice Jesus says, you're to be my witnesses. We're to be witnesses of, and we're stewarding a message. We looked at this last week, how we steward a message of hope that everyone really needs to hear. And since God wants all those who are lost to be found, this is really the life mission that needs to fuel our time on this planet. If you're a Christ follower, this is what He wants your life to be about. To go on a rescue mission, to be sharing your life, to be sharing this message, to be helping people to come to know Jesus Christ. And Jesus describes in this passage where this would take place. He said this will take place in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. He gives these these circles, these locations. And I want to show you just a quick diagram. It's not the greatest uh, picture. I wish, I wish I had blown this up a lot more. But you've got in the center, Jerusalem and Judea, those, the first two rings. That really is representing their hometown, where they were, and their culture. It's very comfortable to be in Jerusalem and Judea for, for these people. This is where they grew up. This is where they were raised. But then he says, my witnesses in Samaria. There's this outer, you know, this green ring that... Samaria is like a nearby culture and then the ends of the earth. But first, Judea and Jerusalem. This would feel normal to reach people, to share this message with people who you would say, they're, they're from here. Think about, what would this be like for me to, to reach out to my Jerusalem, my Judea? Who, who are your people that you just feel comfortable with already? Who has God placed you around that you connect naturally with, that you feel at, at home with, that you feel... Like, there's really not a huge divide. I, I can relate freely. And, and then answer this question. What is one step I can take towards people nearby me? Think on this for a moment. What is one step I can take towards people nearby this week? What can I do? Maybe it just starts with a wave, a high, a smile. So often we're just, just passing and we're missing each other. But maybe it's help. Maybe it's invite. A lot easier to, to think in terms of reaching people in, in my you know, comfort zone. But then out in Samaria, this is a neighboring region. For, for Jesus talking to them, this was a region that, the, you know, His disciples avoided. There was tremendous racial and religious tension with the Jews and the Samaritans. To the point to where it, it, it was smart to go through Samaria to get places because it was faster. But the Jews would go out of their way to avoid passing into Samaria. And they'd go around Samaria in order to get places because they, they didn't want to deal with this tension that existed. There was hostility. They struggled to re- relate across those lines. So think in those terms for a moment. Who do I struggle to relate with? Who, who do I intentionally move around and just avoid? And then what's a step I could take today, this week, to reach to take just a step to reach towards those in a nearby culture, but outside of the group that I run with. What's one step I could... Maybe, again, it's just bridge the gap through, hi, a smile. Maybe it's helping. 
Let's think on that for a moment. How can I tear down the walls that exist between us and them? And then last, the ends of the earth. You know, God may not specifically call you to go overseas and to live among an unreached people group, but you can still take part in what God is doing around the world as you pray for those that are overseas, as you support those who are overseas, as you as you give, as you encourage, as you visit. We have several people that we're connected to that, that you can you know, send an email to, that you can hop on a plane and go visit just for the purpose of encouragement, that you can remember to pray for. So why, you know, who does Jesus care about? Everyone. I mean, He cares about all the thems in the world. I mean, in the entire world, He's saying, look, it's not about us or them. I want to rip this distinction down in order for us to just relate to, and relate to people because all people were lost and needed to be found. So this, this is helpful for me personally to think about these these, these parables especially. What this reminds me of, this parable, and the, the, the two other about the lost sheep and the lost coin, is if, if my mission is not about helping people come to know Jesus Christ, then it needs to be about training myself and training others you know, to, to help others come to know Jesus Christ. Because this is just what's on God's heart. Like, I, if I find myself acting like, thinking like the older brother, I'm moving off track. I want to make sure that when I catch myself doing that, that I, I get back on track because this is, this is just what's on God's heart. We're going to be building bridges. I want to invite you to take out that, uh, the next steps. You see those at the bottom. And just think through these. Go. Maybe the step is to go back to the time when God found you and thank Him. Maybe it's been a while since you thought about what God has done in your life and... and where he's taking you from? What was what was your story like before you really knew him personally, and before he began to draw you to himself? What was that like? That helps us as we consider re- reaching out. And then, second, identify those you see as them around you. Who who are who are them in your life? The people maybe that you just avoid. And then finally, take a step to connect with that group. Let's let's pray together as we wrap up. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this parable, Lord, where we get to see a glimpse into what's on your heart, Lord. Lord, thank you for valuing people. Thank you for pursuing those who are lost. Lord, thank you for the way you pursued. For those of us that are here that do know you personally, that call you Lord, and have already experienced you and your work of saving us. Lord, thank you for pursuing us, for rescuing us, for finding us. Lord, help us to to clue into your heart and to stay there, Lord, to live on mission every single day. Help us not to get wrapped up in just the things of this world that are for ourselves. Help us to join you in being your witnesses near, far. Lord, help us to bridge the gaps that exist around us here and now. We ask you for your help, strength in doing that this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.